I'm Charlie Melcher, and I'd like to welcome you back to the Future of Storytelling podcast. At FOST, we believe that stories have the ability to change the world for the better. But many of the people and organizations that are working to make the world a better, safer, and more just place are not focused on storytelling. That's why in 2015, we started FOST for Good, our 501c3 devoted to educating and inspiring the nonprofit and NGO community to become better storytellers. Our mission has been to help the helpers, to amplify their messages and greater their impact. Over the years, we've had the opportunity to work with and support many impressive nonprofits. But when it comes to purpose-driven storytelling, the place we turn to for inspiration is Scott Harrison and his talented team at Charity Water. Scott started Charity Water with the mission to bring clean and safe drinking water to every person on the planet. Since then, he's raised $450 million to provide clean water to over 11 million people in 28 countries. In our conversation today, Scott and I discuss the epiphany that caused him to turn his life around from being an alcoholic club promoter to becoming the founder and CEO of Charity Water. How he has used storytelling to build the organization into the success that it is today, and why a simple story is so much more powerful in moving people to action than even the most compelling statistics and data. Please join me in welcoming Scott Harrison to the Future of Storytelling podcast. Scott, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. It's an honor to be on with you. So I, I am a huge fan of the work that you have been doing at Charity Water, and I'm certainly not alone in that. Uh, you have built an incredible following, and I'd love to know a little bit about the origins of Charity Water, and specifically how important your own personal story was to sort of the formation of the organization and to its success? You know, I was born in Philadelphia into a middle-class family. At 19 years old, you know, two years before I was legally even allowed to drink, I learned that there was this extraordinary job in New York City called a nightclub promoter. I started working at a, a place called Nell's on 14th Street, then moved to a club called Lotus, uh, and, and over the next decade worked at 40 different nightclubs. And then at 28 years old, I was a heavy two-pack-a-day Marlboro Red smoker with a coughing problem. I had a serious alcohol problem. I had a serious drug problem. I was a heavy user of cocaine, ecstasy, MDMA, Special K. I, I had a gambling problem. I'd kind of become this absolute degenerate scumbag, really, uh, a hedonist living only for myself. You know, it hit me uh, one day. Um, I was in South America, in party town in, in Uruguay, on this pretty decadent vacation. It just hit me that I'd become the worst person, leading perhaps one of the most meaningless lives. And I, I asked myself a very direct question: What would the opposite of my life look like? So that that led me uh, at 28 years old to uh, sell everything uh, I owned in New York City 
and apply to humanitarian service organizations. One organization eventually took me on and said, if I was willing to go live in post-war Liberia, a country at the time I'd never even heard of in West Africa, and if I was willing to pay them $500 a month, I could join their medical mission. I walked away from the drinking and the gambling and the drugs, and I just I left kind of that, that former life completely behind, and I joined a humanitarian medical mission in post-war Liberia. And your job uh, on this medical mission was to do what? They took me on as a photojournalist. <laughs> um, I'd actually you know, gone to New York University and gotten a degree in communications that I'd, I'd never really used. I'll never forget, Charlie, my third day in Africa, my third day on the mission, uh, we, we hosted what was called the, the patient screening. I remember being told that the government had given us the soccer stadium, the kind of broken down football stadium in the center of town to receive the patients. And then it was my job to document all 1,500 of those people we were able to help. And I saw the most unimaginable suffering. And then I saw our doctors responding and really just tried to focus on the hope. So what, did, what came from your experience there? How did you get from that to Charity Water? I finished the year and then I just didn't know what was next. So I signed up for a second year. And it was really the second tour back in Liberia where I discovered the water crisis. And as I traveled in the rural areas, I saw people drinking from swamps and from ponds and from rivers. And I learned that 50% of the country didn't have clean water to drink. And I learned that 50% of the disease in the country was caused by unsafe water and a lack of sanitation. You know, I started linking so many of the things that we were seeing to the lack of access to clean water. You know, just in, in sharp contrast, I had been selling Voss water in my nightclubs for $10 a bottle to people who wouldn't even open the water. They would just order 10 bottles and let us sit there and then drink vodka and champagne. So I came back to New York City at 30 years old on fire from this radical experience that I'd had working with these doctors, seeing all these problems, learning about the need for clean water globally, and said, this is going to be the thing that I do. I'm going to start a charity. Uh, I'm going to call it Charity Water. And I'm going to try to build a global movement to bring this basic need to everybody on the planet. And boy, have you done it. Uh, it's incredible what you've built. And I'm, I'm just curious. So first of all, share so that our audience understands. How many people have you been able to provide clean water to to date? We have now been able to raise about $450 million uh, from you know, over a million generous people scattered around the world. Uh, we have turned that money into uh, clean water in 50,000 villages across 28 countries for 11 million people. Wow. 11 million people. 11 million people. But it's 11 million, Charlie, out of 785 million people who need that clean water as we sit here recording this. So, you know, 170th or so of the, of the problem. Certainly a dent and certainly it matters for the 11 million people that were helped, but so much more work to be done. Okay, so now I want to ask you about, since I come from this perspective of storytelling, uh, I, I found myself uh, on social media not too long ago, and all of a sudden I get served this ad, and it's a charity water ad, and I click on it, 
And next thing I know, it's been like 20 minutes and, and I've been uh, watching this incredible story, your story, uh, in what feels more like a documentary film. First of all, how did you do that? How did you get me to spend 20 minutes sitting there watching something I normally don't spend 15 seconds doing? And, and how successful has that video been for you? That video, which is 20 minutes, and you're right, now has, I don't know, 35 or 40 million views um, and, and has raised a lot of awareness and money for the organization. Kind of starts with my story, but then it moves on to many other stories. So I almost go as maybe the, you know, the narrator to then the guide um, as other people join Charity Water and other people contribute uh, their unique gifts or talent or, or money to, to build it into, you know, a movement. Right. Well, you certainly have a very attuned radar to what is a powerful story that's going to move people to action. So many nonprofits and NGOs uh, are doing really incredible work, but they're often not the world's best storytellers. They, they kind of miss the ability to let people know what they're doing, to, to communicate in a way that's human and that resonates. All too often, in fact, they focus just on the numbers or just on the science, and they don't realize that that's not what's connecting to people's hearts, and it's not motivating people's uh, donations or, or actions. You seem to have a real intuitive sense of finding the stories that will move people. I think many charities are started by academics, by technicians, by people who are really good, by engineers. But often those same skills are, are not the same skills uh, that might build a movement or catch a six-year-old's imagination or capture her heart. And people don't respond to 100-page white papers. You know, I, I remember, uh, I won't call out the org, but it's a, it's a very famous United Nations vehicle that does really, really good work in the world. And the New York Times looked at their website and, and they communicate their issue through PDFs, right? This is what people do. You write papers on it. This is the problem of, you know, the global water uh, crisis and the solutions to it. And it might be a 72-page paper. I think they found 70% of the PDFs on the website had never received one download. <laughs> How many uh, views did that 20-minute video of yours get again? Like 35 million. <laughs> <So> just, <laughs> and it's 20 minutes long. <laughs> Part of it is like the contextual language, right? We're, we're, willing to, we're willing to see something. We're willing to hear something. We're willing to experience something. We might not be, you know, willing to dive into an 82-page discourse on the, you know, systematic problems. So I think it's often then difficult for the leaders, if you are coming from an academic or an engineering background, to attract the talent that you need to attract. So it's not just as easy as saying, well, just outsource it, just hire great storytellers. Because storytellers want to work for storytellers. What I've really outsourced is the engineering and the hydrogeology. I'm really lucky I've got a, a great guy, Christoph Gorder, with 25 years of international development experience. And you know, he's running global operations across 28 countries with a huge team of, of 25 people. And, um, and I focus much more on the movement building, the marketing, the trying to create uh, the next virtual reality film or the next augmented reality experience or, or, or what, what is the next gala experience look like? 
I mean, I'll, I'll just mention one thing. I did get the pleasure to come to one of your recent uh, big galas in San Francisco, and it was extraordinary. I mean, it was something like a Steve Jobs, Apple product launch meets uh, a Dr. Martin Luther King sermon meets like a- On a much lower budget, much lower budget. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just blown away by how it was not what, what it was not. It was not a traditional series of talks, maybe a little video and some rubber chicken in a hotel. It was a complete immersive experience. Tell me how you come up with that. Tell me how you think of it. Do, do you agree with my, with my analysis? Yeah. Um, you know, I think we just say, what's the story? I mean, it starts with what is the, the meta narrative of the evening? And we want to take people on a journey. Every single person sitting there eating rubber chicken and you know, drinking cheap wine gets the chance to go on a transcendent emotional roller coaster that hopefully leads them to the altar of giving a lot more money than they ever thought they would give. And, and at the core, the thing is so pure. Like the magic is the magic of helping others. The magic of moving our inert capital, money from our bank accounts or a donor advised fund, to free that money to actually transform human lives. That's that's what I mean by immersive. Like you're you're not just uh, it's not a top down story. You've worked out the ways for all of us to play, to have a role, to be brought along on that journey. It's very sophisticated. It's, I mean, literally, for example, there was a tablet in front of every one of us on the table, and, and it had our name on it, and each of us could engage in, in the act of giving in this very um, uh, simple way, you know, no, no friction, and, and, it, and you built it, too. So I remember the very first thing was we all gave, I think, $10 just to give this one well fixed. And, of course, everyone could afford $10 who was there. But it, it was so sophisticated. <laughs> Charlie, my early galas were not that interesting. I, I auctioned off watches and Prada handbags and a vacation in Telluride for the first couple of years, like, like everyone else. And then we just realized this sucks Uh, We have people in the wrong part of their brains. I don't want you in the buying side of your brain. So we stopped selling stuff 10 years ago. And then I think we just added in new elements, uh, the element of surprise, the element of sound and music. You know, I'll give you just an example, you know, if people listening are interested in the one before you came to. So you came to the one where we fixed a thousand wells. The year before was actually my favorite. We, we built a dome. We built a, a 360 LED screen that was the size of a football field. And we wrapped it around 500 people. We hung it from the air. Uh, and as you looked up and sat down for dinner, dinner would take 70 minutes. And as you sat, you were watching a woman in Ethiopia walk 70 minutes one way to a swamp for water. She's going, she's got a kid along with her. The kid is giggling. She's laughing. She's singing a little bit. The Ethiopian countryside is beautiful. But there's also a terror in what she's doing because she's down to toxic water that you know she's going to have to haul back up the hill. So we just let that kind of sit for dinner. The, the other just nice connection is it was, this was in San Francisco. So it was around seven or eight o'clock at night. It was 7 a.m. in Ethiopia. So she was actually walking at that same moment. 
So thousands of miles away, this was happening in real time as you were sitting there having your dinner. And we asked everyone, I think it was, I think it was $181 that we needed for everyone to fund the drilling rig. So again, you had an iPad in front of you that said Charlie Melcher. And I just said, hey, um, would you contribute to the drilling rig? And then you could put the name of a loved one on the actual rig. And as you did that on the 360 screen, we saw all of these names flying up, populating a rig. Okay, well, let's just see what it's like to drill a well. And Abrahat's village is going to be the very first, the woman that you just saw is the first well we're going to drill. And at that point, we turned off the lights. We had a community gathered around a rig. We brought the video up and we drilled a well live. And at that moment, I had found some people at, from George Lucas's studio that set up hoses that showered water over all 500 people over the dome. So you're there and literally the water is falling from the sky. And we wound up funding not only the rig, but six and a half years of drilling, raising over $7 million in that moment. And you don't need a lot of money. I think I paid like $10,000 to blast water cannons over 500 people in black tie and get them wet. <laughs> yeah. But you, you gave them something to believe in. You gave them a story that they lived. You, you made it, you used the specific to connect them to the universal but you've also been incredibly successful at getting small-sized donations from a very um, large number of people. Can you talk a little bit about this shift in, in that strategy and how you go about doing that? One of the things that, that drove a lot of growth was this idea of asking people to donate their birthdays to Charity Water. And the, the sticky idea that we came up with, this is what, 13 years ago, was you'd ask for your age in dollars. So I turned 32 and I went around asking every single person I knew for a $32 donation. Promised that 100% of the money would go directly to fund these water projects. The significance of a small donation. If you can only raise $32 for your birthday, or if you're a nine-year-old and you get three $9 donations, knowing that 100% of those $9 donations are actually going to help people has been a, a huge competitive advantage for us. So uh, at our 10th anniversary, we launched a new giving community called The Spring. What if Charity Water could create a subscription community where 100% of the monthly subscription was passed on to people in need of clean water? And we could report back and we could show them those donations turning into transformation to humans. So the, the 20 minute video was the launch of the spring, which then actually did help effectively launch the spring. And you know now we've got uh, members in, in over 120 countries around the world. Uh, it's been so cool to see people in Africa donating every single month to help other people in Africa get access to clean water. So you're a digital native in, in your uh, organization's efforts, and yet you decided to go ahead and do a book one of the oldest <laughs> forms of media, 336-page book. Why'd you do it? How, how has that been as an experience? Yeah, so I spent two years writing Thirst. I think there was something about hitting 10 years of charity water, the 10 million people served milestone. We'd raised over a quarter billion dollars. And I wanted to write about the experience in the hopes that it would help others. The hope that my story... Uh, my personal story might give others hope who might have had a rough first or second act. 
in life. I mean, I think what I was saying is that it's never too late to change. And I, I go even darker than I've, than I've gone with you um, in the narrative of just how bad things really were and, and, and what a scumbag I was. And I really wanted that to say, look, even if you've messed up, even if you've taken a wrong turn, you can use the things that you've learned and kind of find the light. You know, you can use them for good. You can, you can redeem that lost time. And if a, you know, junkie nightclub promoter can start a charity that helps 11 million people and raises almost half a billion dollars, um, chances are you were never as bad as me. And I gave, I, I should say, you know, I didn't take any money from the book. I donated the whole advance back to Charity Water, all the future proceeds, both domestically and now in some of the international editions. So I don't make a penny off it. So I really wanted to be kind of a, a pure expression that really helped others and, and as a way for me actually to become a major donor to the organization. That's wonderful. So, so let me ask you, Scott, how are you feeling right now with the whole COVID-19 pandemic and how's that affecting the work that you're doing at Charity Water? Well, it's a difficult time. Um, charitable giving has taken a massive hit. Uh, as with any economic uncertainty, there goes you know a portion of giving. Um, international giving is going to be more difficult as we see, you know, certainly more needs in our local communities, more food banks that need help, uh, our, our friends and neighbors, you know, facing unemployment. So, so we're seeing a hit. We're seeing people lose their job and drop out of the spring because they can't afford $10, $20, $40 a month. Um, we're seeing some of our corporate partners write, you know, massive commitments down to zero. Uh, as they're unsure of the the future for their their corporation or or their business, um, I think the the terrible sense of loss or grief in this moment is that we realize clean water is literally needed now more than ever before. It is the first line of defense against the spread of the virus around the world. Go on the CDC website, and the number one thing is wash your hands. So I do think on the other side of this, the issue the the issue of clean water for all um, could be even more timely, more top of mind and have more energy, you know, on the backside of this. That, that's my hope and prayer. Yeah. Well, if anyone can figure out how to tell that story in a way that's going to really move people to, to participate and to support, that's you. You've got a great team that works for you and you have a great team of people who've been supporting you for many years. And I'm, I'm confident that that a good majority of those will uh, will stay with you and and help make sure Charity Water gets through this this difficult time. Scott, thank you. This has been a real pleasure. It's always um, so fun to get to hang out with you a bit, even if it's at a safe distance, long distance. Yep. Well, Charlie, let me just say how in, how inspiring your work and your community has been to uh, to us and to you know so many aspiring storytellers. So, thank you for for the opportunity. And you know, again, any anybody that's listening, you know, go check out the video. Uh, just just spreading awareness of our work during this time really really helps. Um, you know, even if you can't give, go to thespring.com and um, just learn a little more about the issue. And again, please, please do support those local charities that, that need you now more than ever. Thank you for being here with me today. And thank you for the work you do. Thanks for the opportunity. We'll speak soon. Thank you for joining us today. And a special thanks to Scott Harrison for his inspiring conversation. If you enjoyed this show, We'd greatly appreciate it if you'd subscribe to and rate our podcast. And don't be shy. 
share us with a friend. Thanks again for your time and a big thank you to our production partner, Charts and Leisure. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, please be safe, be strong, and story on. For more information about the future of storytelling and to subscribe to our newsletter, visit us at fost.org.